what my fear is that we may end up with a with a more fragmented system because mm-hmm. at the same time these other trends I mentioned are going on, we also have that the the legacy system right. is aging and yep. needs replacement, and that's expensive. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring in different voices from the CEA team. Our featured discussion on today's podcast is with Cynthia Chaplin, the Executive Director of CAMPUT, which is the Association of Canada's Energy and Utility Regulators. But before we get to my conversation with Cynthia, I'm joined on the podcast once again by Michael Powell, CEA's Director of Government Relations, to talk about recent news. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Hi, Francis. How are you? I'm doing well. So what's new? Well, let's start in North Bay, where Canada's first utility-scale microgrid has been launched by the local distribution utility. They have a 789-kilowatt microgrid that will have enough uh, energy to heat buildings in the town's community energy park, including the YMCA Aquatic Center and the local arena. Uh, They will be using some storage and some energy management so that 87% of the power will all be from the grid itself. Wow. And so this is... What town, you said? North Bay, Ontario. In North Bay, Ontario. Okay. Uh, So with the opportunity here, I mean, this is a little less than a megawatt in a a small northern town, but gives the opportunity to show how you can have small local grids that can solve a lot of the problems and take care of themselves and move energy around. Cool. Anything else catch your eye this week? Yeah. Next, we're going to go down into the United States, where uh, the United Illuminated, which is a Connecticut utility, mm-hmm. has partnered with a heat pump water heater maker Ream to have a, a basically a pilot project where they give people a, a new, more efficient hot water heater, which uh, on the condition that they let them use it for uh, turn it on and off during peak hours. Right. And what it allows during conditions like polar vortexes is to shift demand and make it so that they cycle the heater on and off as needed so that you might never know if the uh, that your water was off because it will still be warm as you need it, but they can manage the electricity demand so that they can balance the load more efficiently. Apparently, there are some estimates that as much as 500 megawatts a year can be solved with more efficient energy heater, hot water heaters and cycling them. So we've seen pilot projects like that in some companies uh, here in Canada, but it sounds like this is a this is a large scale. If you're saying it can offset 500 megawatts. That's a, that's that's a broader bit, I think. But I think if yeah. we were to compare it to what we saw, say, here in Ontario for mm-hmm. handing out smart thermal stats to turn on and off power to help manage demand back Mm -hmm. in the late aughts when people were worried about air conditioning on hot days breaking the grid. This is sort of the opposite, where you can uh, seamlessly have a device cycling that is more efficient for you, reduces cost, but also helps balance the load of the grid. And you're never going to have to worry about your water being hot enough. Mm -hmm. And interesting that they're doing it in partnership with the manufacturer. Yeah. Well, it gets uh, Mm -hmm. devices in into people's homes. Right. And the last one, it's, you know, it's uh, it's the summer and people are hitting the barbecue circuit. And I think everyone needs an interesting anecdote that they can share. Uh, this isn't exactly new, but it was new to me. And I think it is a, it's a 
great story that we can tell. Uh, everyone's, I think, familiar with Euro, the Eurovision Song Contest, mm -hmm. which is an annual exercise of uh, a mix of camp and voting to produce uh, a popular song in Europe. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s, the Soviet Union was upset that this was uh, taking off in, in the free part of Europe. And so they made their own, based in Poland, called Intervision. And at the time, of course, you couldn't vote with smartphones because they didn't exist. So right. normally you would have uh, just regular phones. But in, in Soviet Russia, they were not as common as people would think. Mm -hmm. So it's probably apocryphal. But the way it was apparently voted on was people turning on and off their lights and <laughs> demand uh, adjusting accordingly so that people would be able to tell where things are. So I spent more time than I care to admit trying to find an authoritative source saying that this is actually how things worked. Uh, but uh, it being late 70s Russia mm -hmm. and the uh, all the uh, fidelity to voting that you would probably expect from that. It probably uh, may or may not be true, but it's definitely a good story that you can work into whatever conversation you have and get the chuckle from your friends and family over the summer. Terrific. That's one we'll, we'll tell around, uh, around as you said, the barbecue circuit this summer. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Right. Michael, thank you very much for bringing us the news once again. Thank you, Francis. And now let's listen to my conversation with Cynthia Chaplin of Canput. I recorded this uh, in June at Queen's University in Kingston at Canput's Energy Regulation Course. Cynthia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Francis. Well, I'm glad you were able to make it. We, here we are at the Canput course in, in, uh, at, at Queen's annual event that uh, I've been able to participate in for a number of times. So I want to thank you for inviting me once again to come here and talk about electricity. <laughs> well, you always make a great contribution. So Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Well, how about you tell us a little bit about um, yourself and in particular, how did you get into economic regulation? Well, I think most people in the area, they, they sort of always start answering that question with, you know, I did not grow up <laughs> dreaming to be a regulator. Um, and really it was... Um, just circumstances. And really, it was sort of the power of mentorship, really. Mm -hmm. um, I began work as an economist for the Department of Energy in Alberta. Right. Uh, and my mentor and supervisor there, Rick Heinemann, um, connected me with George Cook, who was at the Ontario Energy Board. Okay. Uh, because I'd been working out west, but I was going to move back east. Mm -hmm. um, and Rick was very helpful in finding a place for me um, and making that connection for me mm -hmm. to the Ontario Energy Board. Uh, so that was how I found myself there. And then really, the reason I've stayed in regulation mm -hmm. is because of um, it, regulation really aligns with sort of my interests and my values in terms of a focus on public service um, and interest in being engaged with sort of difficult issues that are looking for resolution. Uh -huh. um, and also just the incredible opportunities it's afforded me in terms of uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to, to have a senior leadership role at the Ontario Energy Board. Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to work for the regulator in the UK because really regulation mm -hmm. is kind of worldwide. Right. Uh, and I've, and I'm, uh, now have the opportunity to, to lead Camput. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to be able to go off uh, later this summer and speak at a conference in Australia. Um, again, you know, through this power of connections and sort of the worldwide community of regulators. So. Well, hopefully we can circle back and talk a little bit about the UK and Australia because this, you know, those are those are interesting jurisdictions and some sometimes very interesting lessons learned. But let's start off close to home, sure. Camput. And so re you're relatively new to the Camput role. I am. I uh, I took over from Terry Rochefort as the executive director in November of last year. Yeah. 
but I was involved with CAMPUT back when I was at the Ontario Energy Board. Right. So I'm actually a past member of the executive committee and a past chair yeah. of CAMPUT. So. Yeah. And then, so, so what do you see as, as uh, some of the, the key initiatives and the, the scope of work of CAMPUT today? And then, and then is that likely to change? Yeah. Um, well, as, as uh, maybe most of your listeners know, um, CAMPUT's the Association of Canada's Energy and Utility Regulators, and we have 15 members across, uh, across Canada. We also have three associate members, including the Bahamas and Mexico, so mm-hmm. we have a bit of an international mix. And really, we have two key purposes. One is to promote regulatory excellence. And then really, uh, one of the key focus subsets of that is to educate and develop regulators and their, and their staff. And we promote uh, regulatory excellence through both sort of inward-facing and outward-facing activities. So the inward ones are we have um, issue-focused programs for our members okay. uh, a couple of times throughout the year. So this is outside of the regular conference? This is Exactly. Okay. Um, we sometimes have external speakers, but really the focus on those is to br- ha- create a space for regulators to come together and talk amongst themselves um, to really explore ideas in a, in, in a kind of safer place than in the public public place right. um, and really learn from each other. But then equally important is the outward facing mm-hmm. work that we do. And there, of course, the key event is our annual conference, um, and which we just had in Calgary. Um, and I will put the plug in now that next May it's going to be in St. <laughs> John, John, New Brunswick. New Brunswick. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's our main sort of where we facilitate uh, broader discussions, m- multi-stakeholder discussions. Uh, And then in the area of education and development, this course that we are um, hosting this week in Mm -hmm. Kingston, one of the big activities, it's one of our big educational activities. And in terms of looking towards the future, we are um, starting to do work to develop uh, an advanced course. We'd like to see if we can get an advanced course going. There's lots of... um, other organizations that offer advanced training, but we think maybe there's a, a place for CAMPUT uh, with sort of a Canadian-focused one. I've heard that from, from people who've taken the course in the past as well, how they, they found it to an enriching experience, but how come there isn't like a 201 exactly. or 301? Exactly. Okay. So we want to try to see if we can get that uh, get that organized for people. Very interesting. Okay. And then you'd mentioned that um, you know this is an opportunity to have discussions in a, a safe place. How do regulators and uh, and industry engage through CAMPUT? Is that is it's there's the conference is, is one of the ways we and as you know we put together a workshop at the tail end of the conference because because we always see that well everybody that we need to talk about in this space is going to be there. But are, are there other opportunities or, or how else does the does the sort of the those two communities come together? And I think it is really important that they, I I think that there have to be. Um, opportunities for engagement at a number of different levels and a number of different ways. And really, CAMPUT is looking to enhance its level of engagement overall, not just with industry, but mm-hmm. also with others, other stakeholders as well. Uh, so there is, as you say, that sort of direct, um, that direct sort of engagement through the conference. And we have a broad group of stakeholders there, um, in part thanks to uh, the people that are able to come through the community funds. So right. thanks to you and to the CEA right. for yeah. helping to sponsor that because yeah. it brings people to the table that wouldn't otherwise be able to be there. So who are the, who are the sort of people that, that come 
through to the conference through the community fund. So it's often um, academics, okay. uh, students yep. in public policy or in law, uh, also um, representatives from NGOs. So uh, the Canadian Environmental Law Association mm-hmm. is an example. Uh, so other public interest groups. So really places where you know they don't have the budget to be attending right. a conference, but they are clearly um, quite deeply engaged in regulatory issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so that's sort of that direct kind of engagement. I, what we're also looking to leverage more now is is also with kind of that academic overlay. So there's a, a number of really interesting um, initiatives going on. So the University of Ottawa has the Positive Energy. Um, there's the Public Policy Forum. Right. Um, the Ivy School has an energy uh, energy policy and management center. So uh, we're looking to see how we can kind of lever. It, it's really all about leverage. Mm-hmm. Can put does not have a lot of resources. Right. A lot of our members don't have a lot of resources. So it's how do we kind of leverage some mm-hmm. of the work that's already going on out there, mm-hmm. bringing a regulatory perspective to it and help shape it so that the work that gets done by um, by academics, for example, right. is of use to regulators. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, that's an area where Ivy's um, engaged. They had a conference last year directly bringing together academics mm-hmm. to talk about their research. And one of the big feedbacks we gave to them was this idea of, you know, how do how, there's such excellent research going on. How do you make sure it's being done in a way and delivered in a way mm-hmm. that can actually be used by the regulatory community. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the other the other area that we're engaged is also with the inter- in the international aspect. So Camput has a meeting every year with uh, our our colleagues at Naruk. Okay. Uh, yep. We have a bilateral meeting to yep. discuss common issues, and and that's the thing. Like the issues that are being faced by the by the sector in Canada are much the same as mm-hmm. in the United States and really kind of worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're all wrestling with the same issues. Everybody's situation is a bit different, right. but there is so much in common that's worth sharing. Um, and then uh, Cambit's also involved with the International Confederation of Energy Regulators. And every three years, there's a big world forum on energy right. regulation. Yeah. Uh, so that is where we sort of, you know, reach out to the broader sector overall, the sort of worldwide sector, um, worldwide community of mm-hmm. regulators. Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned, you'd mentioned um, uh, similarities with other jurisdictions, uh, and then you've seen what's happened and what is happening in some of those other jurisdictions. You'd mentioned UK and Australia, um, you know, maybe before we, because I, I want to talk about electricity. <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, um, it's interesting. Tim Egan and I were, were talking on a, one of the earlier podcasts, and one of the points that Tim made was the, the um, very significant similarities between Canada and Australia, uh, both uh, from a geographic standpoint. You know, they, mm-hmm. it's a it, relatively small population spread along a border, right? Concentrated um, on the right on the fringes, right? And 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 then the you know and the resources tend to be uh, further from uh, further from from the population loads. Um, and there's a lot of similarities in, in, as well in terms of uh, in terms of the regulatory frameworks there and here. Uh, have you found that the, that that there was lessons learned that you, that can be drawn for some some of these other jurisdictions, or is it really just you know it's a muddle wherever you go? <laughs> well, I think both are true. Right. It, it can be a bit of a, it is a bit of a muddle, um, but I think we do learn from each other because I think um, it's as you're as you're wrestling with the same issues mm-hmm. although people's circumstances are different you know the, the the principles are sort of the same and I think you 
you learn from somebody else, not necessarily because you're going to adopt exactly what they're doing, but by understanding more deeply what they're doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it, you then figure out the best way to kind of apply those same principles, but to your own situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I'm going to speak at this conference in Australia. Part of what I have to do to prepare for that is to learn more about what's happening in Australia than I know at the moment. But for example, one of the things they want me to speak about is uh, electricity markets. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, uh, I have some involvement with what's going on in Ontario through my role on the on the board of the IESO. Um, But then also bringing sort of that regulatory perspective Mm -hmm. of, um, you know, what are what is the regulator going to be interested in? What is the regulator going to be looking for uh, in those types of uh, initiatives? So you'd mentioned you'd mentioned uh, the electricity system and and you, you have some interesting experience. Uh, as a result of some of the roles that you've held and what you hold now. So uh, I'd be interested to get a sense of what you think the future is going to be looking like for electricity. That's, that's the reason why I kind of launched this podcast, was to have conversations about the future, the future of electricity. Are we really indeed on the, on, the, uh, on the cusp of that change? Or, you know, we've been talking about it for a little while now. Um, but are, are we there yet? And then what's it going to look like when we get out the other end? So I think it is going to change. I don't think... Um I don't think we know yet exactly how it will change, but I think that the potentially the magnitude of change will be so much greater. Like we, you know, when we look to the past, we say, oh, when the market was, uh, you know, either partially deregulated or, or, um, reformed, mm-hmm. you know, that was such a tremendous change. I guess I'm thinking particularly within Ontario and, yep. and, and also Alberta. Uh, but I think that, that the level of change that's going to come in the future is going to be kind of exponentially yeah. larger. And whereas in the past, often the sort of structural changes to the sector were kind of driven by government policy, mm-hmm. I think we're going to see that going forward in the sense of government policy for climate change being a driver. Right. But an even bigger driver is going to be technology change mm-hmm. and customer change. So whereas I think in the past, the government could kind of, between government and regulators, you could kind of steer market reform and you could steer market development. Right. I think there's, in some sense, the decision-making authority is more dispersed now. Okay. And therefore, yeah. I think that's part of the reason that I think regulators, for example, are are struggling with it. It's sort of, well, you know, regulators don't necessarily want to be the ones to sort of set that overall direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but government policies um, in the area of climate change, there's not a clear path forward there right. either, right? Yeah. So, but at the same time, you know, the technology is changing. The costs of alternatives mm-hmm. um, for cu- customers to meet their electricity needs are going down. Yep. Um, so... There's the push, there's the pull. I think it's all going on. And, and what I hope comes out of that, um, is a, is, is a distributed network because I think that that offers the benefits of being stronger and more flexible and more resilient, mm-hmm. which is what we're going to need as we face, you know, cyber threats and, and climate change threats. Um, but sort of what my fear is that we may end up with a, with a more fragmented system because mm-hmm. at the same time, these other trends I mentioned are going on, we also have that the the legacy system right. is aging and yep. needs replacement, and that's expensive. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that as people see, you know, that potentially rising cost, they the system may fragment as customers who have the ability to make a, to sort of opt out of the system, mm-hmm. go off the grid, mm-hmm. perhaps do. 
um, and then leaving fewer people, you know, to pay for the grid. So it's how big of a threat that sort of scenario is, I, I don't know, but it, it's, it worries me. Right. It worries me. Yeah. Well, one of the challenges is we, we, haven't, we, haven't, we haven't figured out yet how to manage uh, from a, a rate setting standpoint that transition because that customer actually doesn't want to disconnect. They still want to have the grid to be able to rely on on that, you know, whether it's a day a week or, or you know, that day a month or a day a year when their their um, distributed system is is not fully functional. I think that's true for many. Yeah. I suspect though that there are also some who maybe don't have absolutely great reliability now mm-hmm. and may may actually make a very conscious trade off that they don't want right. to be part of the system. Yeah. Um, so. I think, but I think it is a rate-making challenge because I don't think, you know, I don't think charging people for leaving is going to be mm-hmm. a long-term sustain, <laughs> sustainable yeah. option. So, and it's the kind of thing that that fragmented system. I think some people will be better off, but at the expense of the system overall and people overall. So yeah. it's how do you, how do you incent people to stay connected because they the benefits they bring to the right. overall network grid. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody will be better off overall, but mm-hmm. only if everybody pretty much stays connected, I think. And that's also going to change the customer experience, right? And the, in the future, that, that customer experience, because of, because of these, these shifting dynamics, is going to change to a significant degree. And it'll have to, of course, change the, the, how the regulator plays into this. Where's, yeah. that, where's that going to go? You know, that's really interesting because I think in the past... Um, Regulators, or maybe maybe all of us in the sector, have kind of treated customers, particularly residential customers, as kind of a fairly homogeneous group. And I and we and we used to refer to them as ratepayers, ratepayers, exactly. <laughs> and I think you know there's going to be a lot more differentiation yeah. going forward. I yeah. think, and I think it's partly driven by demographics. Mm-hmm. So I think you are going to perhaps have maybe the older demographic that's focused and has particular interests but maybe a younger demographic that has different interests mm-hmm. and different and different expectations so it's so i think there's going to be more differentiation of across customers about how they how they use electricity and i think of the example sort of an analogous example so the internet so in mm-hmm. my home i have a pretty basic internet uh, system. I've got Wi-Fi. That all seems, you know, great. And then I find out from my son, who's a university student, that in his household of five young men all using their computers all the time, <laughs> they've got, you know, a, an internet service that is like orders of magnitude better than right. mine. They're all hardwired. Yeah. The wires are everywhere. Um, but they're not really paying that much more than I am. Uh, but they, but they, they, you know, they want a different service and they, they're getting a different service. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see... You know, I think there'll be a bit that a bit of that potentially with electricity as well. Certainly, there'll be like the sort of default, mm-hmm. you know, run-of-the-mill vanilla-flavored service. But you, if people have vehicles or if people have you know other requirements uh, or needs, they're going to want a different kind of service. So I think, and I think, and also the socioeconomic factors mm-hmm. I think will be mm-hmm. at play too. So I think customers will be uh, more differentiated, and I think also the way. Um, the way utilities are able to collect data and use data, right. they'll be able to make that differentiation as right. well in terms of serving those customers. So I think that greater um, greater level of differentiation, greater level of choice, greater choice in the sense of tailoring your service mm-hmm. to meet your needs, mm-hmm. and also tailoring your relationship or experience in dealing with your utility to, right. to what it is that works for you. And that'll be true 
for you know all customer classes, not just for not just for residential. Yeah, kind of reflecting back on on our conversation a couple of minutes ago when you were talking about distributed energy resources, there's going to be a spectrum of of people in terms of their level of comfort with something that is yeah. either more or less reliable. So this sounds like there's going to be a lot of differentiation on a lot of different factors here. I think there I think there could be, yeah. And, and uh, clearly that's going to make life much more difficult for um, the companies they're trying to serve, more complex. However, you know, as, as you noted, there'll, there'll be new tools, there'll be more data. Um, but how is that going to change the, the, the world of your members, of the, the regulators? I think regulators are going to need to and are already demonstrating um, sort of an ability, almost an ability or willingness to kind of experiment. I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing this um, in the area of regulatory sandboxes. I right. know this is a topic that yep. you've talked with people on, on this mm-hmm. podcast. And I think that they're a tremendous opportunity because really what regulators need to be able to do and, and the regulated entities is you need to have some in some sort of controlled environment a way to kind of explore new ideas mm-hmm. explore new tools sort of be able to have this willingness to try new things but kind of controlling that downside right because at right. the end of the day regulators are you know they want to make sure everything is that they are okaying is in the public interest that there are benefits for customers uh, that it's not that that balance of risk between the mm-hmm. utility and its shareholders and the customers is an appropriate balance um, and to me that this sort of idea of sandboxes or pilots is a way to 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 do that and you're sort of showing this commitment to learning and it's also a commitment I think to sharing so it's that idea of um, the things that happen in the sandbox are observable to everybody and I think that that also helps with you know also instilling long-term kind of confidence in the regulator which is something that we're always working towards because it is it's bringing that transparency and it's and it's on an ongoing basis, trying to demonstrate, you know, what we're doing is is about bringing benefits to customers. It's mm-hmm. about enhancing value to customers. Right. Um, so I think that that, and then hopefully the hopefully like a sandbox is not an end in of itself. It's a means towards de- then developing this longer term tools and methods um, or mechanisms that mm-hmm. then can be used and um, and sort of rolled out and used and adopted by. Mm-hmm. By the the industry more broadly. Any any examples that that you can point to in terms of folks that are doing interesting and innovative things in in in, in the sort of the sandbox? Well, I know that concept? the the Ontario Energy Board has set up their sandbox, and I haven't. Um, you should get somebody on your podcast to come in and All talk right. about it we, from we the OED. Because yeah. um, I I don't know sort of mm-hmm. what sort of uptake they've had on it. Right. Um, but I think that it's you know I'm. I think regulators, I'm trying to think the other area, I mean, you do have an inquiry going on uh, in the Alberta Utility Commission, specifically focused on looking uh, at distributed energy resources and about mm-hmm. how how you address the regulatory questions arising from them. So I think regulators will sometimes use their kind of traditional tools right. of a hearing or a policy process or a consultation process to kind of bring views and ideas. But... But what I think will be interesting is to the extent that our the members can kind of even go beyond that to this idea of a sandbox mm-hmm. where people actually try things out. Because I think, you know, you can learn a certain amount by doing kind of the background analysis and the kind of 
trying to figure out what you think it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. But it's only by actually putting some things in place and looking at how they actually work in practice, you actually discover, is it a good idea or is it not a good idea? So to what degree um, would the policy frameworks under which the regulatory authorities operate prove to be at least currently either a barrier or an enabler? Is that is that going to be critical or 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 does it matter? Is, is this something that, that doesn't require necessarily input from the, the, the policy direction that regulatory authorities operate under? Well, I think each regulator definitely takes direction, maybe not like formal direction, but through its statutory um, framework right. and through the statutory, the overall legislative framework that, that the jurisdiction has set up. So yeah. uh, whether it's issues to deal with climate change or issues of dealing with how um, large infrastructure projects mm-hmm. will either be reviewed or approved. So that's sort of setting the what we often say the sort of the big P policy framework, right. and usually that's pretty clear. Hopefully, it's clear. Um, but then there's always lots of uh, discretion for how the regulator then implements that policy, and and often um, sometimes regulators I think find themselves constrained mm-hmm. by the their statutory provisions, but often the provisions are. It's not that the provisions are flexible enough. It's just that the framework is sort of principle-based, mm-hmm. hopefully, mm-hmm. and that therefore you can you can figure out ways to pursue the issues you want to pursue, uh, even given a statutory framework that maybe have been cast in a different time with right. different considerations. So I think, by and large, regulators are quite good at figuring out how to work within their statutory limitations, but still address the issues that need to be addressed. Interesting. When I, when I was talking with uh, Robert Gabor uh, on one of the previous podcasts, um, he talked about how um, it had been um, decades since the regulatory, mm-hmm. since the legislative uh, framework had been updated on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he was talking about how they're doing innovative things in the in the space, uh, in particular, he was talking about um, setting uh, rates for indigenous communities. So, uh, yeah, I think you know to your exactly. Point, I mean, to your point that, that while the legislation may be forty years old, at least some people are now um, you know continuing to figure out how to be able to operate creatively within those frameworks. Yeah, and I think a regulator who often is in the best position is one that doesn't necessarily that has kind of permissive legislation in uh-huh. the sense that the the principles are set but but there's not too much prescription okay. and my observation over time is that the more legislative iterations there are generally the greater the level of prescription they start to want to solve particular situations so they put in place a set of requirements you know, to deal with situation A or situation B, and you end up with a kind of more complex piece of legislation mm-hmm. with, in effect, although it's trying to achieve certain objectives, it ends up kind of constraining a regulator. So I, I well, often it, sort of... I guess it would be more complex for everybody. Yeah, more right? complex for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I often sort of say, I don't, don't be in a hurry to ask for legislative change um, because... You know, see see how you can take what you've got and and make it work to address the issue you want to address, rather than seeking some specific explicit um, authority. Uh, because sometimes, you know, once legisl- it's open for legislative change, mm-hmm. you it may bring things that 
that you wish you didn't right. weren't imposed on you. Yeah, interesting stuff. So, um, are are there any hot topics that you think Campwood is dealing with or will be dealing with uh, in the in the near future? What's what's going to be the big big sort of crunchy issues that uh, that your because I know you 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 do your you do you know in addition to the conference you've got what did you call it it's your it's your uh, well we do uh, things like a regulatory key topics yeah, meeting okay. we have a we have an issues focused program at yeah. our annual, annual general meeting right so what's going to be big what are the big topics that uh, that are, are being dealt with now and or are you know are sort of the next ones that, that you'll be you'll well be I think at? yeah I mean we've already touched on a number of them in our mm-hmm. conversation and you've touched on them in many of your other podcasts so issues around cybersecurity right. um, issues around data how how can reg- and there I think it's how can regulators use data you know utilities are producing all sorts of data how can that be how can we bring modern tools mm-hmm. to the analysis of that data uh, to kind of, on the one hand, address the perennial concern of regulated entities about the sort of the, the burden of the regulatory data and that whole process? So address right. that kind of concern, but in fact, actually enhance the power of the analytics that are being used and brought to bear to to analyze mm-hmm. utility proposals. So I think data, cybersecurity, and then at a more... Um, kind of the higher level question, and I know you spoke to uh, Peter Gurnham about this, is is kind of confidence and trust in, in the regulator and the right. regulatory system. Yeah, and yeah. I sort of I sort of liken it to kind of like respect for regulation and the regulatory process. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it's something where we've seen um, some diminishment of that. Yeah. And it's interesting, I was, you know, we're, in, we're speaking in Kingston and I was walking today and I walked past the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And the Kingston courthouse is a large, imposing building built on a rise, yeah. you know, with grand steps going up to it. And it made me realize, you know, in the past, essentially authority was compelled mm-hmm. um, and, and respect was kind of coerced. And we don't live in that kind of society anymore. Right. You can't coerce you've got well as our parents always told us you have to earn somebody's respect you Mm -hmm. can't just um expect it so it's how how do regulators um continue to evolve so that they can build and maintain that um that respect and that confidence and that trust uh and it is through you know sort of are we being as transparent as we can be Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are we engaging with stakeholders as effectively as we could. And that's where I think all of the work that regulators are doing around Indigenous consultation and mm-hmm. then Indigenous engagement. In fact, not only is that an important in and, uh, and crucial in and of itself, it also, I think, inc- increases the capacity for regulators to be engaging with other communities. Right. Uh, and, and, it is, and it's, you know, sort of about that humility and empathy and and a genuine desire to to learn by listening, mm-hmm. and I think it's something that regulators have always done. And it's it's more a matter of how do we how do we kind of modernize that so it's actually being perceived that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is something. So you know, we we, we talk about um, you know how we write our decisions. How mm-hmm. do regulators write their mm-hmm. decisions? Then how do, how how will regulators talk about their decisions? How will regulators talk about the issues they're facing? Right. Um, so I think that's that's all about building that confidence and trust. Yeah, it's interesting because they, they I, I think um, 
every institution in society is facing something similar. They are. You know, um, I, I know um, the members of, of, of CEA uh, are certainly being challenged with ensuring that there is, um, call it public consent, call it, uh, you know, call it, call it what you will. Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 the ability to, to um, undertake large projects um, can no longer be done without uh, a fairly explicit consent of, of the population, which is a change. It is, and I think, but by building that sort of popular or, mm-hmm. or, or broad support, that's what then in turn, because regulators and, and regulated entities want the, want the politicians and the government to also have confidence right. and trust in the regulator. So right? it gives because, credibility to the process right. and credibility so, to decisions. Exactly, yeah. and therefore yeah. they're sustainable and they're yes. credible and they're, they'll, you know... Um, kind of be worth the paper they're written on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it sort of comes... So if, if I think if there is that sort of popular, broad-based support, then you're more likely then to also have... You'll be able to build and maintain the support of the government and politicians. Because, you know, when they start to lose confidence or yep. lose uh, trust or seek to be more interventionist, they're doing that in response to something. They're not just yep. doing it because yep. they, you know, they are doing it in t- response to what their constituency, what their stakeholders are telling mm-hmm. them. So, you know, we, I think regulators need to work on it kind of on both sides to continue to work with governments and politicians to, to, um, uh, you know, make sure that they kind of as best as possible understand the benefits of regulation, the right. benefits of separating some decision making away from political considerations. Uh, and try to build the confidence um, there, and then also on the sort of the much more broader, more popular that those ideas of social license mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, and you know broader stakeholder engagement and uh, and buy-in. Or well, before you go, we could talk about this all day. <laughs> <laughs> before you go, and it was the same thing with the same thing with Peter. Every time Peter, uh, Tim, or, or I get together and talk about those issues because they're 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 so deep and there are uh, you know there are so many different directions that you can go with it and they're fascinating. Um, but uh, in the interest of time, yes. let me let me jump to a question that I that I ask everybody that comes on the podcast, uh, and that that is what is the, what is the book that you're either the book that you're reading or a book that you've just read that you would suggest other people crack the cover of. Sure. And, uh, and I, I've been listening to some of the podcasts, and I must admit, I've been quite um, awed by some of the book selections. Yeah. And, but I have to say, I'm a big fan of fiction. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love fiction. I love um, kind of exploring those ideas through storytelling. And, and what I'm reading right now is called Unsheltered by mm-hmm. Barbara Kingsolver. And it takes place over two time periods, sort of the 1800s and, and modern time. And mm-hmm. it's families, two different families that live in the same house. And this house is literally falling apart. It's sort of splitting apart in the middle. It's sort of being pulled away on itself, okay. which, of course, is a metaphor for what's also happening uh-huh. in the individual families. Gotcha. Um, but uh, if I can, you know, it's a... <laughs> It's a bit of a stretch to kind of tie it back to regulation, but it is this idea of, you know, the themes over time kind of stay the same. The thing, you know, the things that are tensions and um, uh, tensions and, and difficulties in families, you know, are the same over time. They take a different form because right. of the, the what's going on in society at the time. 
but those issues of sort of struggle for power and identity are kind of the same. And then, but it, what she's building in is this very interesting idea of how, you know, we kind of take for granted, you know, the stability and the, you know, the foundation of our physical home. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking around me now at this very grand mm -hmm. uh, home that was built, you know, a century ago and how, you know, the people who are in it felt rooted and safe. Yes. And what happens to you when literally the home you live in is, no is not safe, safe yes. and you don't have an option, yeah. um, which I think really kind of resonates with, with a situation that many people are facing mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the world. Um, and so, yeah, it's just an interesting exploration of so those ideas. So the title is? Unsheltered. And it's by? Barbara Kinsolver. All right. Cynthia, thank you for joining the podcast. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It was fun. Chana Pereira. I'm Vice President, Policy Development at CEA. I'm here to talk about uh, the Energy and Mines Ministers meeting, which took place in Cranbrook, uh, BC, from July 15th to 18th. The Energy and Mines Ministers meeting, in uh, short form, EMMC, was a good meeting to talk about Canada's uh, energy and mine sectors and the issues that industry, uh, these industries are going through, from competitiveness to innovation and sustainability, as well as uh, issues such as uh, diversity and inclusion, cyber security, and uh, infrastructure modernization. The key takeaways uh, from the meeting were related to uh, cyber security in the energy sector, the need for collaboration, competitiveness, uh, how do we get uh, resources to market, and, and the provinces and the federal government having to work together to make that happen, innovation in the energy and mine sectors, uh, as well as what we should be doing over the next decade to promote diversity and inclusion in uh, Canada's natural resources sector. EMMC is attended by federal and provincial government uh, officials, uh, industry stakeholders, indigenous uh, uh, leaders, and other stakeholders. EMMC is a forum uh, for discussion on key uh, issues facing um, industry and governments, uh, as I said, uh, on issues like competitiveness, innovation, cyber security, uh, energy infrastructure. Uh, it uh, provides uh, a forum for networking as well. Uh, talk to key officials and other stakeholders about the issues that they're facing and how we can collaborate and, and move this country forward when it comes to energy uh, and mines. Canada is the fourth largest producer of oil and, uh, and in terms of electricity, we have 80% of uh, our generation from zero emission fuel types and we have a great story to tell and this forum provides an opportunity to share the collective um, uh, issues and, and how we're dealing with them on a day-to-day -day basis. CEA will continue to be engaged in EMMC. The next uh, conference is going to be in July 2020 in Whitehorse, Yukon. It's very important that we uh, broaden the discussion uh, to also uh, emphasize uh, the importance of uh, electricity in Canada's energy system. We have a good story to share from uh, uh, new renewable technologies that uh, we are installing as well as uh, the partnerships with indigenous communities. And uh, there's no other, uh, no better place to uh, uh, talk about indigenous partnerships uh, than Whitehorse. 
development. We want to continue that dialogue and uh, I'm really looking forward to the next meeting in 2020. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Invite you to tune in for future discussions and invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.